This is episode 54 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. I'm your host, Julian Bleeker. In this episode, I'm talking to a friend of mine named Dave Gray. Dave and I first met back in 2009, I think it was, and he invited me somewhat out of the blue, because I didn't know him at the time, to something called The Overlap, and I had no idea what The Overlap was, so I agreed to go. And it was uh, a bunch of us for a few days uh, up in Asilomar, which is this kind of converted, feels like a converted YMCA camp, summer camp, um, up in uh, up and around Monterey. Pretty cool place. And it was just a gathering and a kind of workshop for people to share their ideas and do lots of kind of hands-on work in and around what we were each of us individually intrigued by at that moment and at that time I was really trying to dig into what it was to use design to shape knowledge and ways in which we think and understand the world I had this kind of vague idea about epistemological monkey wrenches um, which I kind of put up on the wall and which we had some conversations about and it was just really a fun kind of generative time to to luxuriate in people who were really actively engaged in imagining harder about whatever domain of knowledge and uh, practice they were interested in and involved in. Very hands-on thing. I was just looking at some old photos of um, the activities that we were doing. Don't forget, you can support this podcast and all the work that we're doing at the Near Future Laboratory by subscribing as a patron on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. We'd really appreciate your support. And don't forget, the Manual of Design Fiction is in pre-order. Its uh, arrival is imminent. It's on its way between Istanbul to Berlin, where our distribution center. The Manual of Design Fiction.com. Uh, get yours now, because there's a, a very limited number left. Uh, from the pre-orders we just did a small production run i've got uh the design fiction work kit the um 1.1 edition will be coming out soon as well and uh, a bunch of other really cool stuff that i'm excited to to get to that's been a little bit why i've been distracted from the podcast I've been just making stuff okay without further ado here's my conversation with dave gray did you say something about like, I don't want to be the guy who's like, you know, just kind of spends a third of their life in the airport. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so I guess I'll, maybe I'll go through it again. I, um, I had got to a point where um, I didn't have to work and um, which is an awesome place to be. And then I started thinking about, okay, what, then I did nothing for a while, which, as you said, was kind of nice, but um, something was missing. And I started thinking about, well, what is it that really I enjoy and what do I want to do? And uh, what I don't enjoy is flying around. What I don't enjoy is um, coming in and doing these one-off type events where you come in and you're sort of expected to either give a talk or run a workshop that... Um, jump starts people into a different way of doing things or whatever but then you don't actually get to see what happens after that if anything yeah. and um 
part of the feedback that I would get is, well, you know, we get excited for a little while and then it's just back to normal. So um, <clears throat> I wanted, and I saw an opportunity with COVID that uh, people were getting more comfortable with working virtually. And so I sort of decided, okay, I'm gonna, um, I'm just gonna change the way I engage when people reach out. And instead of saying, okay, I'll give a talk or I'll do a workshop, um, just started saying, well, that that's this is how I work with people now, and how I work with people is um, with teams and um, over a longer period of time. So that's what I started doing. That's what I've been doing. It's, it often starts with whatever it was that they thought was an emergency, but it quickly gets into much more interesting and richer and deeper and more complex relationships where I am. <clears throat> taking the toolkit of things that I've developed over 25, 30 years and um, helping people apply them to their design problems. And like today was a great example. I've had a lot of fun teaching this team. Um, they've got business models and it's a pretty complex set of business models because they're going to be doing air taxi services with vehicles that don't even exist yet and they're designing and creating these vehicles and so what is that uber of the skies going to look like and uh it's one thing to get to a bunch of sticky notes and make a business model canvas about you know what what are the customer segments and what's the revenue model and what are the expenses and key partners and so forth but that doesn't help you really form a picture in your head and so today I was showing them how to turn that stuff into a picture. And yeah, it was really fun. It was fun for me um, to uh, see them go from, you know, you know what an EV tall is? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so is that so vertical takeoff and landing, but the E is, is electronic. Electronic. Yeah. yeah. So it's not gas powered, but going from, um, okay, guess what? You know, I'm going to show you how to draw one. <laughs> and yeah. you know these vehicles are kind of complex they got eight rotors and uh you know fan jets and um they're they're not it took me actually a, an hour or two just to come up with a way to simplify how to draw it and uh, uh you want to see yeah please <laughs> all right you won't this won't be able to you won't be able to show, put this on your podcast but um we can maybe add it in the in the <laughs> show notes as they say okay well uh so I had this little thing, this little device, and um, so I was uh, showing them literally how, okay, so I, I took them through an exercise to get to this point, but so it's like a stick figure of a EV tall. Mm -hmm. It's got these rotors and Kind of like a helicopter, but, and this is what I came up with. You know, here's little people inside. Right. And um, so they were like, to them, that, that was a big, exciting moment where they went from like, what we're going to have to, what we're going to draw our business model to, oh, wow, I see how I could do this. I can see how, you know, even looking at that might look complicated, but when I was actually breaking it down into, you know, triangles and squares and, and rectangles and lines, 
it became much easier. And then I even, uh, I think I even showed them all my uh, little co complicated drawings, trying to trying to figure it out. You know, <laughs> it's like how do you draw this thing, and you know, all the little, all the different kind of like. Um, iterations I had to go through just to figure out how to make it simple like that, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, it was, uh, I'll stop sharing the screen now, but it was, uh, very fun. I mean, so very engaging because it's not just, I'm teaching them how to do that. It's that I'm teaching them how to do that. And then next week we're going to get together and I'm going to see all their sketches that they took their business model canvases and pulled them out into scenarios, blew them out into scenarios and visual stories. And then we're going to iterate on those. And then, you know, then they'll use those to have conversations with partners that they might want to work with about how they could work together and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. So to me, that's just much more interesting. And then, you know, we'll take those and, they'll have um, seven or eight separate ones that they'll then try and see if they can combine and then they'll iterate on that and they'll iterate on it again. And, you know, um, <clears throat> I'll show them how to put, pull those into, uh, you know, PowerPoint and add words to them. And before you know it, they're making these great infographics without having any kind of design background or anything. They're, you know, they're, sketching their ideas and bringing them to life. And uh, so I'm really excited to see what happens next. And um, I guess I'm really enjoying this work way of working where um, we don't necessarily have all the problems defined in advance, but we figure out a way that I can uh, interact with the team to, you know, just help them with all the stuff that they're working on. And uh, it's, I think, this is what you were intrigued by, I think, is that it's more, um, I certainly can't work with as many clients. I have to, you know, cut that way back, but the kinds of interactions I do have with my customers are much richer and deeper. And, um, and I feel like I get, we all, we both on both sides, we get a feeling of accomplishment from that, mm. you know, like we're making something together. There, there are a couple layers there. So the, I'm curious. Um, so I'll, I'll go from like nearest to furthest in my the way I'm imagining it. Okay. Nearest, and what was what was the other way in which you work? Presumably, it was like kind of come in for a one shot deal, like you're the flashback. Yeah, you're, you know, it's, it's sort of like so it involves all the stuff, you know, working with procurement, you know, scoping a project putting together a proposal, um, <clears throat> all that kind of, I guess, kind of process and sales type activity, um, scoping it, getting a budget approved, all that stuff still has to happen for, and it's maybe a little bit even harder to justify a longer term working relationship, but, um, <coughs> excuse me, but that's not the fun part to me. And, um, Scoping a project is great because you have a very clear, you know, defined beginning, middle and end. But a lot of times when people call people like you and me, they don't, they, maybe they haven't defined a problem very well, or maybe we might want to question how they define the problem. And 
So by the time someone's scoping a project, they have to have a very clear definition of the problem. And what happens when they don't um, have a clear definition of the problem? What happened? I mean, not everything is best served as a project. Um, I think what I've done is made a pivot from someone who does projects to someone who helps with capability building. So it's more about, um, it's not really training. And I hesitate to call it coaching because everyone I know who does coaching, I kind of feel like is a douchebag. <laughs> or I don't know, I, I have a little bit of a mental, um, uh, mental block when it comes to the idea of being a coach. But I think the closest thing, somewhere between it being a teacher and a consultant and a coach, it's like I have, um, over the course of my career, I've developed a lot of different skills, mostly using visual thinking and visual thinking, meaning both sketching and working with tools and templates and sticky notes and stuff to help people, you know, get their brain around fuzzy problems and try to design their way into a better future. And, um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's just a very different way of engaging a very different way of working um, because people are more comfortable and there's more um, remote work is more of a given now. I think it's easier because there's all that, uh, all that stuff around flying and well, we have to make everything work in a couple of days or a day long workshop, or we got to fit it into a couple of days and get everybody in the same room and fly them into a hotel somewhere. And, you know, if we get rid of all that stuff, then we can actually work, put the stuff on our calendar and work every week and get in the groove and, and uh, kind of do things that way. So I guess, you know, COVID was part of it because uh, it opened up some space and also created this opportunity of working virtually. And plus the tools for that have gotten way, way better um, for collaborative whiteboards and, and sticking out type activities. Those things, they didn't used to exist and now they're and Zoom and all these other things make it super easy to connect just like we're doing now. And, and uh, so the, the confluence of, um, the tools and technologies being there and the way the sh cultural shift toward you know remote work being more acceptable more common they all sort of dovetailed into a tailwind for this kind of uh, work and i think that's when we were first talking that's what caught your interest yeah there's some, there's something in there um as well as the the um be you know more of more of a longitudinal engagement so you're like kind of running alongside things that i think was was definitely resonating and trying to find the way of just of just being the uh yeah i mean just kind of like dropped in and you don't know really you don't get a good visceral sense of like your impact or you know i think you get to a point where it's like it, you just you want to feel like you're you're making meaningful contributions you want to feel mm -hmm. back and and that can only happen in a limited way if you just kind of drop in. Mm. You're usually semi-exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and definitely exhausted on the other end of it. Yeah, it's definitely something that that um, that resonates and, and it's something that I think I've been definitely thinking about. 
the other aspect of it of 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 your way of working that you just kind of demonstrated is uh is the drawing and i'm really curious yeah. to to hear from you like how well a how did you get to that as 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 a, a kind of principal um aspect of what you what you bring to teams when you're doing your building the capabilities because even i mean it was just like beautiful the way you described it. it's kind of like you know, as I, I mean i know and um in this context it would be help it would be helpful to describe it just like starting from primitives and then mm -hmm. something happens when you get to that point where it's like oh my god i did something that before might have made me throw up forever based on some <laughs> really bad experience when i was seven years old yeah. my, my mean uncle didn't respond well to the drawing that i did or something <laughs> yeah i had one of those moments i remember i was drawing a football player i think it was franco harris and, uh, Paris, yes. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was, uh, I went in, I, it was, in, I thought I was really proud of it. And I went in and showed it to my dad and he just looked at it and he goes, foot's too small. <laughs> and Ruin. You know, Ruin. well, part of it was I knew he was right. And that I had spent so much time and energy on it. It was like, I was frustrated and yeah, we've all had those moments, I think. Um, but how did I, I mean, well, I've always been a draw, drawing since I was little, never stopped. Like most people stop around eight or nine years old. I never stopped, I kept going. And for me, um, and I went to art school, so I studied illustration. So I've, and I had a, a previous career before I started doing the consulting work. I, I was working, doing infographics for newspapers. So I always had a bent toward taking complex information and turning it into visuals and I was always kind of interested in the abstract stuff, the stuff that was harder to draw. Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty common in that field to be, to kind of do cutaway views of the new stadium or, you know, like intricate kind of detailed diagrams of buildings or whatever. Um, and that stuff is hmm. definitely fun and interesting, but I was always kind of, um, I was always, interested in using the drawing as a way of understanding the world. And so I did a lot of business. I got into the interested in the business section because um, I wanted to know more about that whole world. And um, so I would go to the business uh, team and say, okay, well, what's going on? What can we draw? Well, merger. Well, what's a merger? You know, um, just start to visualize these things. And uh, you normally associate with that, with that, Except if you were to illustrate it for the purposes of accompanying an article on that or something like that, you might just. I would start to ask questions about things that, you know, because if I didn't go to them first, they would come to me with, okay, here's a revenue and earnings chart yeah. <laughs> for company A, B, C. And those were really boring to do. So I would try to go to them first and say, well, what, yeah, but what's really happening? What's going on? And, um, <clears throat> And then they would start to explain, well, you know, um, these uh, banks are growing and they have to swallow each other up in order to grow bigger and bigger. And we have this local bank uh, that was being acquired by Bank of America. And that was the story, St. Louis Bank. And, uh, but really the story was that both of these, both of these banks had been gobbling up other banks and our little local bank had been gobbling up just as much. It just happened to meet a bigger fish. Hmm. And so um, 
that one I did visualize as fish eating fish and you know it's a big full page newspaper illustration of fish eating fish and and, and uh, except it had the descriptions of when the bank mergers had happened and they were getting bigger and bigger and um, meeting in the middle and you know but their metaphor is a great you know that that's a metaphorical way of showing something but um, it was a way of telling the story that wouldn't have got told any other way and I think well, I, I started out mentioning about this company that I'm working with, that they're having to basically design services for vehicles and companies that don't even exist yet. So think about that. Um, and I think over time, when I started a company, I started getting started out just doing infographics, but then just started getting pulled into more complex and abstract and innovation and visionary types of things where you know um a new technology like rfid comes along that was early 2000s um now you have rfid and what happens when rfid is and everything yeah. well does this mean that i'll be able to drive a, a van with a reader by my competitor's warehouse and see everything that they got in the warehouse well yeah maybe well <laughs> that's the stuff we have to think through and one of the best ways to think it through is to visualize it and I think, you know, went from doing it to teaching it to showing other people and trying to break down that process of how do I do it? And, you know, it's basically conversations and sketches and then you put the sketches in front of people and then they give you feedback and then you iterate it and you try and get closer and closer to some vision. Um, so there's a lot of sketching and a lot of iteration involved in creating any kind of visual story and uh that's just really fun yeah it's fun and it's productive and it's a way to make the future bring the future closer in make it more accessible like a lot of the work that you do uh it's i guess it's a kind of design fiction it's like a comic version yeah well i mean that it, it totally resonates insofar as it's it you know what what you're well i don't want to presume too much but when i when i think about this kind of work that, that you do and that I've you know learned from you through the times that we've been in the same room together is that you're you're tapping into a different kind of reaction to the questions that are being asked that isn't going through the kind of analytic data processing unit yeah. inside of our head. It's going through something that is is about is about feel and it activates in a different way. And I, I think I think you know I have to say that even even in the in the context of what might be like the simpler, let's call them you know beautifully rudimentary drawings that maybe some of your clients were able to get to in 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 the room, the fact that they're able to get there and they probably sense a feel feel a sense of like exuberance at having represented this thing, you know probably holds short of like running home and showing their 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 kids like look what I did. <laughs> well, but they do that sometimes. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, it just brings a different level of energy to the work and the questions. Yeah, that's maybe you know I would I would assume at least for the design fiction work that I do, like that's the point. The point is to kind of engage the work differently, to be more expansive, and getting into the possibilities and not running into that roadblock, that cognitive roadblock that can happen when you, when your your insights and your innovation is represented in a PowerPoint deck or a bullet yeah. or a white you know even a white paper. Um, without illustration even if it is illustrated it's like oh i got to get through this thing because i better be 
prepared for the Monday morning stand-up, otherwise I'll look like a buffoon. Um, when you have these kind of visceral representations, I mean, this thing behind me, that came out of that. That was, you know, that was a result of, of, of a, you know, a set of conversations like, okay, how are we going to represent this? It's that, and it and it lives. It continues mm -hmm. to live, and it's shared, and it's kind of like pointed at, and people sort of, oh yeah, I remember that. That's, you know, it, it provides like a a trajectory and a visceral, tangible representation of the thinking. That's yeah. That's kind of the way your imagination works. It's inside your head, but you don't actually know it till you are able to draw it or put it on paper or visualize it in some way. Um, I read somewhere that. Uh, um, Treasure Island, the book started with just Robert Louis Stevenson drawing the map mm. of the island. <laughs> and so he draws the map and the whole story unfolds out of that map. Where is the map? Who finds the map? What's in the map? What happens when they get to the island, you know? Um, <clears throat> and I think that's part of it too, is you draw, you, you have a, a, an ink, and that's how writers work too, right? You have an inkling and an idea, you have a scene. And so you draw the scene and then you say, okay, well, how did they get there? What happened before in order for that to happen? What happens after that? What is that, what comes next? And I mean, any great story, you want to know what happens next. And uh, in a way, every company has a great story and they want to know, they all want to know what happens next. And uh, I don't know, I, I mean, and I like to, I mean, one thing I like to tell people is if it can't be drawn, it can't be done. So it's a, it's a way to think about, okay, what's possible. Doesn't mean that if it can be drawn, it can be done necessarily. I mean, I could draw myself with rocket jumping boots or something. That doesn't mean it's possible, you know, physically possible, but at least it means it's possible to imagine it. And, uh, I think, you know, uh, I just think there's a real power and like you say it does engage people in a different way gets them thinking differently um like when you say you say powerpoint people will make a powerpoint and then they'll think oh how are we going to draw this and i did a storyboard exercise with this team where they had to go on google and search for images and kind of fill in the storyboard that way and you know you can do it but it doesn't engage you in the same way and if you've ever made a PowerPoint where you're looking for images and oh, you're trying, I mean, you always have something that, you know, you can't figure out how to draw, you know. It's exhausting. Like, it's exhausting. Um, you know, like uh, when I did, was doing a, a presentation about the uh, story of the book, how the book got created. And one of the stories about how books got created is that, um, Julius Caesar used to take scrolls and fold them and mark them. So when he would send them off, he could refer to different parts of them. Mm. And so how do you, you know, Google, just Google search for, you know, Julius Caesar folding a scroll. <laughs> you have to draw it. And that's yeah. what I did. <clears throat> anyway. So, did, so he would create folds in order, in order to produce a crease or would he keep it folded? Uh, it was almost like a way of bookmarking, I think. Um, I can't, it's been a while, I can't remember, but, um, uh, and it might be apocryphal, but it was the story that he, you know, at the time they, everything was a scroll, but how do you, how do you mark it? How do you, how do you reference it? And uh, he, one of the stories was that he used to fold them. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you were getting into it there with the the. If there's something about the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a it's a maybe very useful primitive, and it, maybe it's unfortunate. I mean, I think it is it's definitely unfortunate that whatever happens when we're seven or eight and we stop drawing. I mean, you continued on. You know, other people continue on. Is, you know, I, I wonder. It's totally you know just a made up thing, but I think it's 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 a. I do it with intent to say that that's probably around the time that we're told to basically, you know, kind of Sorry, it's time to uh pick a career path, get on, you know, stop stop playing around and Right. Um I think that that's when the imagination begins to atrophy effectively like you're not doing the silly drawings anymore sitting you know sitting on your stomach with your with your yeah. tongue sticking out a skewed <laughs> straight line or i think it's about the time that people that you you start looking at it and say it doesn't look good enough that you you get an idea of what drawing is supposed to be that it's supposed to be a represent you know have a literal representation of something in front of you instead of an exercise in the imagination of like building with lego blocks you know you're creating something in your imagination <clears throat> it goes from being a create creation exercise to being a copying, I guess. There's something that happens in there. It's not good enough. Doesn't look like this. Doesn't look like that. Um, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it, it's a really powerful tool for, um, and there's a conversation. There's a conversation between your mind and what you put on paper. Yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's the thing. That's that, that generative aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So that that's where the imagination is getting to take a nice stroll and kind of do a little bit of a workout. And it's like, yeah, there's this, there are these feelings in my, in, you know, circulating in my, maybe somatically, maybe you feel it all over. And it's like, I need to try to find, I want to give that some form and I want to, I want to express it to others mm -hmm. in some way. And here's one way I can, you know, I can find it, find a, a pencil or a pen and put it down on paper um, in, in some form and doing it visually and kind of representationally maybe different from prose maybe it's just this because it's something that people you know react to it in, in a particular kind of way not to not to exclude prose from you know having the same kinds of effect but mm -hmm. we're talking about drawing specifically and that conversation between you know amongst yourselves i guess there's something amongst your you know the, this this swirl of consciousness is going on it's like what is this that i'm feeling and how do i want to represent it and i think my my sort of hypothesis is is that feeling that you can't do it for whatever reason you know you describe one maybe it's like that doesn't that's not a good drawing I mean whatever that means I mean <laughs> based on on some you know external criteria as opposed to what does it make me feel absent that criteria that you can find that way of find ways of having that conversation so that you are using your imagination routinely, regularly. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I feel like, I feel like we, you know, there's, it's, it's a problem that we kind of give up on that. Like we rely on other, other people's imagination to tell us what we should be feeling, whether yeah. that, you know, like, you know, um, like really, uh, it, people that maybe in some category referred to as like innovators in, in whatever practice or field, because they kind of keep pushing, they kept pushing their imagination to find new things, discover new things, find new ways of thinking and seeing and working. You know, everyone from, you know, uh, you know, 
Elon Musk or whatever to to just um, to, to the humble artist who's kind of like pained um, for the fact that they have to keep doing it. They can't but yeah. you know, drawing or painting or writing music or whatever it might be. Yeah, and there's in the work that I do, there's the have with yourself and between yourself and a drawing, but then there's what the magic that happens when you show it to other people. And almost invariably, people will see things in your drawing that you didn't even intend to put in there. And you kind of build on those and, and grow from there. And um, especially when it's something complex and you've got a number of people that you want to get their thoughts in it, it's like a can be like a snowball rolling downhill in a good way that it gains momentum and more people get their hands on it and you know like this team i'm coaching right now they're going to go out and have conversations with partners and i'm definitely encouraging them to show sketches sure rather than finished work because um when people are presented with a sketch they feel like oh you want my input you want me and they might even pick up a pen and, and draw on it or connect to it in that way. And so I think, yeah, it's a really powerful way to kind of engage your own imagination, but then also to engage other people in a different way and get them thinking and putting themselves into the picture and like, okay, where, who am I in this picture? Yeah. And what am I, or why am I not in this picture? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I remember one time doing a thing that um, it was like a change of, initiative at Nokia and we were um I know you worked with Nokia right you so um, actually I not only yeah. worked with I worked in in Nokia yeah and um we were working on this change initiative and we were drawing okay draw the current state and draw this future state and there was this woman there and she was really upset and I was like what's the matter she's like well I'm the change lady so I'm not in the future state if we get <laughs> <laughs> if we get there i i can't put myself in the picture i'm not, I'm not there anymore i'm like don't worry we won't ever get there <laughs> but uh i mean it's like those are all the kind of questions that come up when you get to put things into a picture people start to imagine themselves in there and they it also makes it easier for them to believe in a future when they can see the see the picture and see how it all fits and how things work together um yeah, I keep coming back to this, but it's just, for me, it's, gets me up in the morning and it's, it's fun. It's really fun to sort of have this superpower, but also to be able to enable anyone, people who don't think that they can draw to give them this, show them that they have the superpower and then to see them spread their wings and start to fly with it and get excited about it. And, um, it's, it's a lot of fun for me. It's got to be incredibly rewarding because, you know, especially yeah. something like as, as primitive and simple as drawing that people thought they're like, yeah, I'm not, not, that's not going to happen. I'm not, the, I'm not the one for what all, you know, all those reasons. That's, that's great. That's great. Um, and it is also conducive. I mean, working in an ongoing way is very conducive. To working that way too, much more so than a one-off workshop or a, giving a talk, because um, people need time. They need to do a bad drawing. They need to do ten bad drawings before they get to one that they really are 
happy with and excited about. So there's a lot of iteration. They need to share those things. They need to get input. They need to get feedback. They need to incorporate the feedback, redo it, then um, take a drawing and um, <clears throat> get to a point where they think it's self-explanatory and then put it in front of someone and just have to sit there and not say anything and let them read it and then mm -hmm. ask them what they read and then realizing what people took away from it or didn't. And uh, so it's a it's really powerful way to um, develop a vision, elaborate the vision, iterate the vision, get buy-in on the vision um, and kind of just develop it and test it even. Yeah. You know, so anything you can imagine, you can draw. You can, if you can imagine it, you can draw it. And if you can draw it, then you can show what you can imagine to other people. And then suddenly they can imagine it. And then they start to insert their thoughts and ideas into it. And yeah, you have, yeah, it's fun, but it's also really powerful. Yeah. How do you manage the, the 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 potential embarrassment or shame reactions in that in that process? Well, I uh, I usually start out with this exercise I call squiggle birds. We can do it right now if you want. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, do it. All right, I have to turn on my camera again. To share this with you. Um, this is a good, really good exercise for getting people going. Is um, I just have them make scribbles. You got a, if you got a pen, you can do this one with me. I, I okay. I, I actually I vaguely remember this. Yeah, I might have done it with you. I do it a lot. Yeah. Um, but I just have them do scribbles on a piece of paper, and then I have them um, turn the squiggles into birds with just a little a beak and an eye and a couple of feet and a tail. And uh, you know, just to kind of get them warmed up and get them like doing something that they feel is um you know um so they can get a sense that oh wow look at that i made a bird bird <laughs> yeah and all i did was a little squiggle i didn't even know what i was drawing at first and it's a, a way to get them to see oh well um the drawing isn't really the, the actual mark making on the paper isn't really the thing it's how the brain will look at that and fill it in mm. and uh so even though those scribbles didn't mean anything they weren't intended to be anything um they already are something and the things that you know the little keys that say bird i mean we just tend to think of a bird as a fluffy thing with a beak and an eye and feet <laughs> <laughs> and they're moving around all the time. So we don't ever really see them that clearly and just start there. And then I have this thing called the visual alphabet, which I, you know, show them is like, okay, if you can make these simple marks, you know, you can um, put them together and, you know, with uh, I think it's 12 simple shapes you know, if you can make those shapes, you can make anything. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and then I show them, okay, well, now we want to, now let's draw an eVTOL. <laughs> you know, and I show them how we can put these simple shapes together and suddenly you've got an eVTOL. And now 
we um we put a we put a couple more shapes in and now we've got like oh there's a radio signal going on and somebody's saying something and mm -hmm. somebody else is thinking something and suddenly we have a whole story going on yeah. you know and a few lines and it's moving and you know before you know it you've got uh you you've got a scene in a story and now you think, okay, well, it happened, had to happen before this scene or for that to happen and what has to happen next. And it's going to have to, it's in the air. So it's going to have to land. And, uh, well, where are they going? <laughs> well, um, they're going to the airport. Great. And where did they come from? Well, they started at home. Well, how did they get there? How did they get from their home to on the, uh, eVTOL? Well, they had to probably had to get on a nap and they probably had to get a car or some kind of transport to get to the vertiport where the thing takes off from. And right. um, well, and what happens when the thing lands? Well, you have to swap out the batteries and how does it get, you know, where does, you know, and so you just keep, um, and before you know it, you've got a whole system described visually with little icons and uh, people walking around and what happens to their baggage and, you know, you know, and before you know it, you've got a very fleshed out vision with, and you start showing it to people and then you get their input and then you uh, figure out what everybody else is going to be doing. What happens if they need parts and yeah. um, but what's kind of maintenance? How often do you have to do that? And um, yeah. So. What, so, in, so in the example that you're giving, what would be the nature of the team that that would would engage in this like where do they fit within the overall organization or is it the organization <clears throat> well in this case the team is responsible for that whole um service they're responsible for um uh envisioning it figuring out what the ecosystem looks like um you know there are different elements of the company but they have engineers they have service designers they have um uh, financial, you know, kind yeah, of thing, yeah. uh, modelers, and they're all working together to say, okay, um, we're, we've designed this vehicle, we're going to be building this vehicle, we're going to be producing it, we're already sold some. Um, who's going to, somebody's going to have to op be operating this vehicle, there needs to be an air traffic management system to help the, um, you know, figure out how we manage the airspace, all these things, you know, materials, services, all these things don't exist yet. They're gonna to have to be figured out. Um, so how do we get people engaged in that? Well, who's buying them now? Okay, let's talk to them. Right. <laughs> what are they gonna do with them? <laughs> um, you buy something and that's the way the airline industry works. You know, you buy things 10 years before you need them. Okay, so you're buying them what what do you how are you planning to operate them? what are you thinking about doing well maybe we haven't quite figured it out yet either so how do we get sketches of this vision and share them with those people and have those conversations about how that might work and what that might look like and uh, yeah you can't do it by just doing google image searches you have to actually think it through and sketch it out. And it's super fun, super fun. Yeah. Because people see, people look at a business model canvas and they still see boxes and squares. 
um, they don't actually see a business in operation. They, they don't really have a vision, that vision in the same way that a product designer can see a product. <clears throat> when you're a service designer, you're, you're developing something that's very hard to see, but service design can be visualized in terms of customer stories, as you well know. And those customer stories can be sketched up and drawn out, even when they involve things, machines and things that, that don't exist yet. And as you know, by imagining those things and creating them and creating space for people to have conversations around them, that's where ideas come from. Yeah, it's that space around which people can have conversations. That's, I, I, that's the critical part, finding the way to have points of entry and you know, hooks or nozzle, or whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use whereby people can engage in it. And that, that's, that's been one of the, I'll, I'll say, you know, it's a, it's a very kind of Julian kind of thing to say. It's like, I want to make the things that make people create the opportunities for people sort of like double take on something, like look at it, they know what they're seeing and then look again and be like, wait, what? <laughs> get them to say wait what <clears throat> and ask the question tell me more and then they're engaged like then they're in then they're, they're starting to enter into the world and then their their defenses go down for their maybe natural normal ordinary everyday kind of cynical human mm -hmm. take you want people to have that wide open wide-eyed amazement and wonder that they lost when they're eight years old and now they're 34 and you want them to actually become a part of this and not just assume what's going on or that you want them to be like, whoa, what? That's and what's cooler than doing that with your own work, the stuff that you're already familiar with and gotten jaded on. And now you start to go, wow, I can actually draw this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's ex I'm excited to see what I get back from them next week because it'll be their first, you know, first time out of the nest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, just thinking back at so many things that I've worked on where it almost always is about imagining a future that doesn't exist yet and either comparing it to the problems in the current state. Um, it's about getting people um, you know, I've done a lot of technology sales stuff where people don't necessarily have a compelling reason to change the way they're doing things. Um, but the technology, not only does it deliver something, it transforms the way that they work and what's possible. And that's often the case with anything that's kind of substantially new. You don't just buy it. You don't just buy a flying car and put it in the same garage that you've always used and you don't just use it in the same way. I mean, that's what so much futurism is about is like, uh, you know, you look at some of the stuff from the 1800s where they're just imagining, you know, well, you'll have a home motor and everything, everything plugs into the motor in your home and are just the weird things that people imagine that, um, you know, they, they put, you put a new technology into an old system and it can't, it almost can't help but transform the whole system. So that's where drawing can be really powerful too. It shows how 
not just how the new thing enters into the equation, but how it changes the whole system. Yeah. I mean, I remember people saying, well, why would I, why would I want um, to text on a mobile phone? Well, now, you, you know, the way that we use our mobile phones has transformed to everything that we do, everything. <laughs> but, but thinking back, it's like, well, why would I want to take a picture with my phone? I have, you know, if I have a cam, if I need a camera, I'll get a camera. But now suddenly you can take a picture of anything at any time. Um, now we have all these different things that we can do with that. And people start doing that. And suddenly we have, you know, you can, we have all this AI stuff processing all these billions and billions of pictures. And it's just, you probably can never imagine the way it's going to be, but you can get closer. And so what's the, what's the relationship between not being able to imagine and the fact that the thing comes to be, is there, is there like a, is there an unexpected kind of weird um, quantum generative function that, that jumps that gap? Cause you, you know, it's an, it's an interesting kind of quandary because you can't imagine it yet. It comes to be. Yeah, well, I think this whole metaverse thing that everyone's talking about now is, you know, it's like I saw in the news, you know, like I went into the reporters, like I went into the metaverse. Here's what happened. And uh, of course, at first, that stuff always seems ridiculous, you know. And uh, I think to a lot of people, it does seem ridiculous, especially when you look at the guy and he's got this thing on his face and, you know, he's obviously not anywhere. Um but we can't, you know, and I think probably most of us have an extremely primitive picture of what that is, how that's going to change, what, what that's going to change in terms of our lives. But we just, I mean, we can start drawing pictures of what that might look like. But it, until we get there, I think there's always stuff that we haven't figured out. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a that's still a puzzle for me because I'm, I'm, I'm not picturing, I have done a little bit of playing around in virtual worlds, but I'm, I haven't got my brain around it yet. How, yeah. how am I drawing anything? Draw anything about virtual worlds? Yeah, metaverse, you know, what I mean? Uh, no. Uh -uh. If you were back at your, at your, at your newspaper job and they're like, hey, we got this metaverse spread. Or, you know, this guy, or we send one of our guys out and he was in the metaverse. We need something to illustrate that. Yeah, I would probably go and talk to the experts and say, okay, um, give me a scenario in five to 10 years. Talk me through the scene in the movie. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you're in a hospital and, um, the only doctor who knows how to operate is in Singapore and right. the doctor gets on his thing and he goes into his machine and he moves his fingers around and over here there's a robot that is operating on you you know I'm like okay great I'll draw that scene and then so I'll have uh, I would have some kind of picture that has all these different scenes whether it's from cooking to you know <clears throat> you know, visiting Mars or whatever those scenarios are and just sketch them up and draw them up and um, kind of 
put him into some kind of ecosystem uh, that made sense and and probably I mean, one one of the things that I was that one of my favorite things that I did um, when I was at the newspaper was um, there was a whole section of um, the city that had been this guy was kind of known as the mastermind of it. His name is Joe Edwards, and he started out by owning this bar that was kind of in a bad part of town. It was kind of a biker bar, and he um, got the whole all the all the uh, uh, somehow architected this great kind of strip and um uh it's called the loop and uh so I, I interviewed him about how he did that but not only just how he did that but what would you do if you could do downtown because you know downtown st louis is um it, it doesn't really have a waterfront and you know um it's the city is actually separated from the waterfront but there's this great river there and and so he talked to, he talked me through all the stuff that he did. He had to get, you know, um, we had to find ways to block off the exits for pickpockets and muggers. We had to find ways to kind of block those alleyways off. Hmm. Um, we put down stars in the sidewalk of all the stars of people, famous people from St. Louis. We actually, um, we had to get uh, trash cans on the street, but they had to be heavy enough that no one could walk away with them. And we got all the vendors to agree to leave their lights on because after you, um, you know, after you eat, maybe you want to go window shopping. And even when they close, they would leave their lights on. And then we had to also think about space because you want to have a, a ecosystem where people can keep their business in the same vicinity as it grows. So if you want to start with a hot dog uh, stand, but you want to be able to move it into a small, um, business but then you might want to grow it you need to have a bigger area nearby so we had all this different mix of space and you wanted to make sure that no one had offices on the retail level that you had all the offices move up to the um, second level and all this stuff and then had him I sat down with him and had him draw with me a vision for what you could do with downtown and he had all kinds of great ideas they never happened but they were really cool in terms of well you could cover the freeway here and there could be a park and you could have a walk along the, the water and you know all kinds of kind of cool ideas that he had about um you know if he was god or if he was mayor or whatever so uh and that's a really fun kind of thing to do is to find people who do know something really well and have them find ways to apply that uh thinking in other spaces and it's easy to sit down with somebody and it may not sound easy but it's relatively easy compared to doing proposals and getting you know investors and all that stuff it's relatively easy to draw a picture of something yeah that could be and uh it's like once you have a picture of it, it becomes easier for other people to believe in and invest in and get excited about yeah that, that's that's part of it from from you know the i guess the more development side of things I mean, development kind of loosely, but the, the, yeah, you want to sell the future. You tell a story to sell the future and show, show, show what that the world would look like. That was definitely very much in my mind when I, um, when I, when I made the annual report for, for my company, which I, yeah. I think was like the basis by which it was, you know, it, it enrolled people in the vision in, in a way that I simply wasn't able to do by just having 
you know, standard stand up kind of pitch conversations and yeah. the 11 the page PowerPoint. It's like, no, let me put together this, like, I don't can't remember how long it is. It's like 70 pages mm-hmm. of an annual report from, from a point in the future. And I, you know, I, generally, I, I don't know, we could talk to the people, but I think that they were like, wow, okay, I got it. You know, I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a, it was something other than uh, just some numbers and, 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 you know, an idea, however well articulated in, in those 11, in those 11 slides. Yeah, it's like instead of saying we could, it's like saying we will. It's like yeah. it's almost like okay, well, it's done. Now, what yeah. do you think of it? You represent it as if it's already happened. Yeah, it's like there's. A, I think there's a reason that architects don't just make blueprints. They make build models. They do. They they show the building in the context of the city street that it's going to be, and they do renderings and. Um, they are charged with creating something, but they, in a way, they create it before they create it because they, they are able to describe the visceral experience of what it's going to feel like. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's so funny you mentioned architects. Like I've been, for one reason or another, you know, literally over the last couple of weeks, I've just been having lots of conversations with architects. Quite, you know, quite accidentally. It's just mm-hmm. it's not like I'm doing any excavation of it. But last night, I was at SciArc. Uh, so, you know, well-regarded kind of architecture, uh, I don't know what you call it, academy uh, here in Los Angeles for a friend's, Liam Young was doing a live, he called it a performance, which it was, of a film he made uh, based on tons of, of research about cities that, you know, extraordinary, um, you know, in a large team, uh, the, it was, it's a mix of doing literally expeditions in order to understand the kind of global mechanics of making, manufacturing, trans transforming sh- ship, uh, what do they call it? It's not shipwrecking ship. When they strip down ships and like, where does lithium come from for our future? And these kinds wow. of things. beautiful film that um, it called Planet City with a, a book that goes along with it. And he's an architect, mm. but he made a film to tell a story about about a, a you know like a very well researched hypothesis about one particular way in which we might avert global planetary collapse and it's a very radical notion that there should just be one mega city um, and the way the way he tells the story it's it's in a very he referred to it as like almost like a it's like the equivalent of um, romantic poetry. So it's not a very, it's not a didactic thing of like, oh, you know, there's new concrete kind of technology and we can use um, 3D printing techniques to create these kind of, it was nothing like that. It's just a very poetic, beautiful, and it was, it was uh, in, in the event, it was rendered like almost like an immersive thing. It was, it was, it, was um, it wasn't like high tech, it was a little bit crude, but basically three screens. So you get 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can kind of like, you know, gander about. And it, he, it, early on, he, he encouraged people, because there are a lot of students and stuff like that, like, just take a seat on the concrete floor. There were like chairs. But so, you know, a, a bunch of us just kind of like just went and sat on the concrete floor just to kind of be in this world. And then he, he essentially narrated. It was beautiful. He like narrated it in a, and he talked about it later in the, in the Q&A about 
the importance of that way of kind of rendering these ideas mm -hmm. uh, and and particularly the use of the use of a, a beautiful you know kind of epic film depiction of it um and then coincident coincidental to that i had reached out to uh to this artist who again total coincidence happened to be also a professor at sciarc because i was in, i was encouraged to look at her work and so i had reached out to her and i said like hey um, i would love to talk to you and, and and see your work and so we arranged to meet and turns out she's an architect <laughs> and, and mm. she's making film and doing art exhibits um, in order to yeah do this job of translating the imagination into material form and then uh, a couple episodes back uh, Radhad Mystery was on the podcast and turns out she's an she's an architect which she trained as an architect was kind of like eh, I don't know about this you know for a variety of reasons which I think a lot of architects go through like the challenges of getting certified and licensed and then okay so now what am I going to do like the future of the parking garage, you know, from an <laughs> construction company. And so they end up becoming like futurists in some way, you know, broadly, foresight strategists, um, filmmakers, uh, artists, which is kind of beautiful in, in, in a very particular way, because then it comes down to that core nugget that yeah. I'm talking about, which is they've been well-trained to represent the imagination in some kind of material form, um, oftentimes quite visual and a very particular set of techniques uh, are required to learn that skill, not just how to draw a straight line or how to do a mechanical drawing or how to right. you know, do an engineering diagram, but to think about systems in a way that, and then represent those systems in a, in a visual form. I've been, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna grab a book. This guy, wow, Jan Kaplicki, architect who just lived in this kind of future, in this future world. I think you would nerd out on this stuff. It's it's yeah. beautiful. Wow, yeah, kinds of things. Very um, but cool. He had a, I think his his practice. I hope I get it right. I think it was called like future systems. Mm. This is like seventies kind of you know sort of super studio esque. Mm. All right, there he goes. That was my friend Dave Gray. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget, buy the book, The Manual of Design Fiction. A few copies are left. And uh, support us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Okay, until the next episode, I'm Julian, and I'm out. <laughs>